The Man of God Network exists to help the church in her mission to identify and equip qualified, faithful men for the gospel ministry and for the recovery of biblical reformation in our day. It's our joy to provide you with resources that both encourage you and edify you as you seek to build Christ's church where you are, to the end that He is better known, loved, and exalted. We appreciate the support of our listeners. To learn more about how you can help us accomplish our mission, visit manofgodnetwork.com. Latter days of the ministry of Robert Murray McChain. John 4, verse 34, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. During the summer of 1842, McChain was exposed to several attacks of illness, experienced some severe personal trials, and felt the assaults of sore temptation. His own words will best express his state. July 17th. I am myself much tempted, and have no hope, but as a worm on the arm of Jesus. August 4th, often, often would I have been glad to depart and be with Christ. I am now much better in body and mind, having a little of the presence of my beloved, whose absence is death to me. The same month, I have been carried through deep waters, bodily and spiritual, since we last met. It was his own persuasion that few had more to struggle with than the inner man, who can tell what wars go on within. During this season of trial, he was invited to form one of a number of ministers from Scotland, who were to visit the north of England, with no other purpose than to preach the glad tidings. The scheme was planned by a Christian gentleman who has done much for Christ in his generation. When the invitation reached him, he was in the heat of his furnace. He mentioned this to the brother who corresponded with him on the subject, Mr. Purves of Jedburgh, whose reply was balm to his spirit. I have a fellow feeling with you in your present infirmity, and you know for your consolation that another has who is a brother indeed. In all our afflictions he is afflicted. He is, we may say, the common heart of his people, and they are one body, and an infirmity in the very remotest and meanest member is felt there and born there. Let us console, solace, yea, satiate ourselves in him, as amid afflictions especially brother does in brother. It is blessed to be like him in everything, even in suffering. There is a great want about all Christians who have not suffered. Some flowers must be broken or bruised before they can emit any fragrance. All the wounds of Christ send out sweetness. All the sorrows of Christians do the same. Commend me to a bruised brother, a broken reed, one like the Son of Man. The man of sorrows is never far from him. To me there is something sacred and sweet in all suffering. It is so much akin to the man of sorrows. It was thus he suffered, and thus that he was comforted. He wrote back, agreeing to go, and added, Remember me especially, who am heavy laden oftentimes my heart is all of sin. But Jesus lives. They set out for England. 
Mr. Purrs, Mr. Somerville of Anderston, Mr. Cumming of Dumbarney, and Mr. Bonar of Kelso formed a company. Their chief station was Newcastle, where William Chalmers Burns had recently been laboring with some success, and where he had seen a town given itself up to utter ungodliness, a town where Satan's trenches were deep and wide, his walls strong and high, his garrison great and fearless, and where all that man could do seemed but his arrow shot against a tower of brass. But those who went knew that the Spirit of God was omnipotent, and that he could take the prey from the mighty. They perished both in the open air and in the places of worship belonging to the Presbyterians and to the Wesleyan Methodists. The defenders of the Sabbath cause were especially prepared to welcome Mr. McChain, whose tract on the Lord's Day has been widely circulated and blessed. Many were attracted to hear. Interesting congregations assembled in the marketplace, and there is reason to believe many were impressed. A person in a town describes McChain's last address as being peculiarly awakening. He preached in the open air, in a space of ground between the cloth market and St. Nicholas' church. Above a thousand were present, and the service continued until ten without one person moving from the ground. The moon shone brightly, and the sky was spangled with stars. His subject was a great white throne, Revelation 20, verse 11. In concluding his address, he told them that they would never meet again till they all met at the judgment seat of Christ, but the glorious heavens over their heads, and the bright moon that shone upon them, and the old venerable church behind them were his witnesses that he had set before them life and death. Some will have cause to remember that night through eternity. He later preached the same subject with equal impressiveness in the meadows at Dundee. It was in the open air, and the rain fell heavy, yet the dense crowd stood still to the end. His preaching at Gilsland also was not without effect, and he had good cause to bless the Lord for bringing him through Dunfrenshire on his way home. He returned to his people in the beginning of September full of peace and joy. I have returned much stronger, indeed quite well. I think I've got some precious souls for my hire on my way home. I earnestly long for more grace and personal holiness and more usefulness. The sunsets during that autumn were peculiarly beautiful. Scarcely a day passed, but he gazed on the glowing west after dinner. And as he gazed, he would speak of the sun of righteousness, or the joy of angels in his presence, or the blessedness of those whose sun can go no more down until his face shone with gladness as he spoke. And during the winter, he was observed to be particularly joyful being strong in body, and feeling the near presence of Jesus in his soul. He lived in the blessed consciousness that he was a child of God, humble and meek, just because he was fully assured that Jehovah was his God and Father. Many often felt that in prayer the name Holy Father was breathed with special tenderness and solemnity from his lips.
His flock at St. Peter's began to murmur at his absence when again he left them for ten days in November to assist Mr. Hamilton of Regent Square, London, at his communion. But it was his desire for souls that thus led him from place to place. Combined with a growing feeling that the Lord was calling him to evangelistic more than to pastoral labors. This visit was a blessed one, and the growth of his soul in holiness and the growth of his soul in holiness was visible to many. During the days of his visit to Mr. Hamilton, he read through the Song of Solomon at the time of family worship, commenting briefly on it with rare gracefulness and poetic taste and yet rare manifestation of soul-filling love to the Savior's person, the sanctified affections of his soul, and his insight into the mind of Jesus seemed to have deeply affected his friends on these occasions. Receiving while here an invitation to return by the way of Kelso, he replied, London, November 5th, 1842. My dear Horatius, our friends here will not let me away till the Friday morning, so that it will require all my diligence to reach Dundee before the Sabbath. I will thus be disappointed of the joy of seeing you and ministering a word to your dear flock. Oh, that my soul were new-molded, and I were effectually called a second time, and made a vessel full of the Spirit, to tell only of Jesus and his love. I fear I shall never be in this world what I desire. I have prayed three times here. A few tears also have been shed. Oh, for George Whitfield's week in London when a thousand letters came. The same Jesus reigns. The same Spirit is able. Why is he restrained? Is this in ours? Are we the bottle-stoppers of these heavenly dews? Ever yours till glory. P.S. We shall meet, God willing, at the convocation. The memorable convocation met at Edinburgh on November 17th. There were 500 ministers present from all parts of Scotland. The encroachment of the civil courts upon the prerogatives of Christ, the only head acknowledged by our church, and the negligent treatment hereto given by the legislator of the country to every remonstrance on the part of the church, had brought on a crisis. The Church of Scotland had maintained from the days of the Reformation that her connection with the state was understood to imply no surrender whatsoever of complete independence in regulating all spiritual manners and have allowed any civil authority to control her in doctrine, discipline, or any spiritual act, would have been a daring and flagrant act of treachery to her lord and king. The deliberations of the convocation continued during eight days, and the momentous results are well known in this land. Mr. McJane was never absent from any of the diets of the solemn assembly. He felt a deepest interest in every mentor that came before them, got much light as to the path of duty in the course of the consultations, and put his name to all the resolutions heartily sympathizing in the decided determination that, as a Church of Christ, we must abandon our connection with the state. If our claim of rights were rejected, these eight days were times of remarkable union and prayerfulness. The proceedings from time to time were suspended until the brethren again asked counsel of the Lord by prayer, 
and none present will forget the affecting solemnity with which, on one occasion, Mr. McChain poured out our wants before the Lord. We do not have many records of his public work after this date. Almost the last note in his diary is dated December 25th. This day ordained four elders and admitted a fifth who will all, I trust, be a blessing in this place when I am gone. Was graciously awakened a great while before day and had two hours alone with God. Preached with much comfort on 1 Timothy 5 verse 17. Let the elders that rule well, and so on. At the end of the sermon and prayer, proposed the regular questions and made the congregation sing standing during which time I came down from the pulpit and stood over the four men, then prayed, and all the elders gave the right hand of fellowship, during which I returned to the pulpit and addressed them and the congregation on their relative duties, altogether a solemn scene. The last recorded cases of awakening, and the last entry in his diary is dated January 6, 1843, heard of an awakened soul finding rest. True rest, I trust. Two new cases of awakening, both very deep and touching. At the very time when I was beginning to give up in despair, God gives me tokens of his presence returning. He here speaks of discouragement. When God, for a few months or weeks, seemed to be withholding his hand from saving souls, if he was not right in thus hastily forgetting the past for a little, still this feature of his ministry is to be well considered. He entertains so full of persuasion that a faithful minister has every reason to expect to see souls converted under him, that when this was withheld, he began to fear that some hidden evil was provoking the Lord and grieving the Spirit. And ought it not to be so with all of us? Ought we not to suspect either that we are not living near to God? or that our message is not a true transcript of the glad tidings in both matter and manner. When we see no souls brought to Jesus, God may certainly hide from our knowledge much of what he accomplishes by our means, but it certainly will he bring to our view some seals of our ministry, in order that our persuasion of being thus sent by him may solemnize and overawe us, as well as lead us, on to unwearied labor. Ought it not be the inscription over the doors of our assembly and college halls? Thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ. It makes manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 14 About this time in one of his manuscripts, there occurs this sentence, as I was walking in the fields, a thought came over me with almost overwhelming power that every one of my flock must soon be in heaven or hell. Oh, how I wish that I had a tongue like thunder that I might make all here, or that I had a frame like iron that I might visit everyone and say, Escape for your life, ah, sinners. You little know how I fear that you will lay the blame of your damnation at my door. He was never satisfied with his own attainments and holiness. He was always ready to learn, and quick to apply any suggestion that might tend to his greatest usefulness. By this time he used to sing a psalm or hymn every day after dinner. 
It was often the Lord's, my shepherd, and so on. Or we may stand before the Lamb. Sometimes it was that hymn, Oh, for a closer walk with God. And sometimes a psalm, Oh, that I like a dove had wings. Friend said of him, I've sometimes compared him to the silver and graceful ash with its pencil branches and leaves of gentle green reflecting gleams of happy sunshine. The fall of its leaf, too, is like the fall of its green. Tonight and gone tomorrow, it does not sear nor wither. An experienced servant of God has said that while popularity is a snare that few are not caught by, a more subtle and dangerous snare is to be famed for holiness. The fame of being a godly man is as great a snare as the fame of being learned or eloquent. It is possible to attend with scrupulous anxiety even the secret habits of devotion in order to get a name for holiness. If any were exposed to the snare in his day, Mr. McChain was the person. Yet nothing is more certain than that, to the very last, he was ever discovering and successfully resisting the deceitful tendencies of his own heart and a tempting devil. Two things he never ceased to have from the cultivation of personal holiness and the most anxious efforts to save souls. About this time he wrote down for his own use an examination into things that ought to be amended and changed. I subjoin it entirely. How singularly close and impartial are these researches into his soul. How acute is he in discovering his variations from the holy law of God. Oh, that we were all taught by the same Spirit thus to try our reins. It is only when we are thus, thoroughly experiencing our helplessness, and discovering the thousand forms of indwelling sin, that we really sit as disciples at Christ's feet, and gladly receive Him as all in all. And at each such moment we feel in the spirit of Ignatius, it is only now that I begin to be a disciple. Mr. McChain entitles the examination of his heart and life Reformation, and it begins with, quote, It is the duty of ministers in the state to begin the reformation of religion and manners with themselves, families, and so on, with confession of past sin, earnest prayer for direction, grace, and full purpose of heart. Malachi 3, verse 3, He shall purify the sons of Levi, Ministers are probably laid aside for a time for this very purpose. 1. Personal Reformation I am persuaded that I shall obtain the highest amount of present happiness. I shall do most for God's glory and the good of man, and I shall have the fullest reward in eternity by maintaining a conscience always washed in Christ's blood, by being filled with the Holy Spirit at all times and by attaining the most entire likeness to Christ in mind, will, and heart that is possible for a redeemed sinner to attain to in this world, I am persuaded that whenever any from without, or my own heart from within, at any moment, or in any circumstances contradicts this, if anyone shall insinuate that it is not for my present and eternal happiness, and for God's glory, in my usefulness to maintain a blood-washed conscience, to be entirely filled with the Spirit, and to be fully conformed to the image of Christ in all things, that is the voice of the devil, God's enemy. 
Deany me of my soul and of all good, the most foolish, wicked, and miserable of all the creatures. See Proverbs 9, verse 17. Stolen waters are sweet. To maintain a conscience void of offense, I'm persuaded that I ought to confess my sins more. I think I ought to confess sin the moment I see it to be sin, whether I am in company or in study or even preaching. The soul ought to cast a glance of abhorrence at the sin. If I go on with the duty, leaving the sin unconfessed, I go on with a burdened conscience and add sin to sin. I think I, at certain times of the day, my best time, say, after breakfast and after tea, to confess solemnly the sins of the previous hours and a seek their complete remission. I find that the devil often makes use of the confession of sin to stir up again the very sin confessed into new exercise, so that I am afraid to dwell upon the confession. I must ask experienced Christians about this. For the present, I think, I should strive against this awful abuse of confession, whereby the devil seeks to frighten me away from confessing. I ought to take all methods for seeing the vileness of my sins. I ought to regard myself as a condemned branch of Adam, as partaker of a nature opposite to God from the womb, Psalm 51, as having a heart full of all wickedness which pollutes every thought, word, and action during my whole life, from birth to death. I ought to confess often the sins of my youth, like David and Paul, my sins before conversion, my sins since conversion, sins against light and knowledge, against love and grace, against the person of the Godhead. I ought to look at my sins in the light of the holy law, in the light of God's countenance, in the light of the cross, in the light of the judgment seat, in the light of hell, in the light of eternity. I ought to examine my dreams, my floating thoughts, my predilections, my often recurring actions, my habits of thought, feeling, speech, and action, the slanders of my enemies and the reproofs, and even banterings of my friends to find out traces of my prevailing sin, manner for confession. I ought to have a stated day of confession, with fasting, say, once a month. I ought to have a number of scriptures marked to bring sin to remembrance. I ought to make use of all bodily affliction, domestic trial, frowns of providence on myself, house, parish, church, or country, as calls from God to confess sin. The sense of afflictions of other men should call me to the same. I ought on Sabbath evenings and on communion Sabbath evenings to be especially careful to confess the sins of holy things. I ought to confess the sins of my confessions, their imperfections, sinful aims, self-righteous tendency, and so on, and to look to Christ as having confessed my sins perfectly over his own sacrifice. I ought to go to Christ for the forgiveness of each sin. In washing my body, I go over every spot and wash it out, should I be less careful in washing my soul. I ought to see the stripe that was made on the back of Jesus by each of my sins. I ought to see the infinite pain thrill through the soul of Jesus equal to an eternity of my hell for my sins, and for all of them.
They ought to see that in Christ's blood shedding, there is an infinite overpayment for all my sins. Although Christ did not suffer more than infinite justice demanded, yet he could not suffer at all without laying down an infinite ransom. I feel when I have sinned an immediate reluctance to go to Christ. I am ashamed to go. I feel as if it would do me no good to go as if it were making Christ a minister of sin. To go straight from the swine trough to the best robe and a thousand other excuses. But I am persuaded they are all lies direct from hell. John argues the opposite way. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jeremiah 3 verse 1 and a thousand other scriptures are against it. I am sure there is neither peace nor safety from deeper sin, but in going directly to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's way of peace and holiness. It is folly to the world and a beclouded heart, but it is the way. I must never think a sin too small to need immediate application to the blood of Christ. If I put away a good conscience concerning faith, I make shipwreck. I must never think my sins too great, too aggravated, too presumptuous when done on my knees or in preaching or by a dying bed or during dangerous illness to hinder me from fleeing to Christ. The weight of my sin should act like the weight of a clock. The heavier it is, it makes it go the faster. I must not only wash in Christ's blood, but clothe me in Christ's obedience. For every sin of omission and self, I may find a divinely perfect obedience ready for me in Christ. For every sin of commission and self, I may find not only a stripe or a wound in Christ, but also a perfect rendering of the opposite obedience in my place, so that the law is magnified. Its curse more than carried its demand more than answered. Often the doctrine of Christ for me appears common, well known, having nothing new in it, and I am tempted to pass it by and go to some scripture more taking. This is the devil again, a red-hot lie. Christ for us is ever new, ever glorious. Unsearchable riches of Christ, an infinite object, and the only one for a guilty soul. I ought to have a number of scriptures ready which lead my blind soul directly to Christ, such as Isaiah 45 and Romans 3. Number two, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I am persuaded that I ought to study more my own weakness. I ought to have a number of scriptures ready to be meditated on, such as Romans 7, John 15, to convince me that I am a helpless worm. I'm tempted to think that I am now an established Christian, that I've overcome this or that loss so long that I've got into the habit of the opposite grace, so that there is no fear. I may venture very near the temptation, nearer than other men. This is a lie of Satan. I might as well speak of gunpowder getting by habit a power of resisting fire, so as to not catch the spark. As long as powder is wet, it resists a spark, but when it becomes dry, it is ready to explode at the first touch. As long as the Spirit dwells in my heart, He deadens me to sin, so that if lawfully called through temptation, I may reckon upon God carrying me through.
but when the spirit leaves me, I'm like dry gunpowder. Oh, for a sense of this. I'm tempted to think that there are some sins for which I have no natural taste, such as strong drink, profane language, and so on, so that I need not fear temptation to such sins. This is a lie, a proud, presumptuous lie. The seeds of all sins are in my heart, and perhaps all the more dangerously that I do not see them. I ought to pray and labor for the deepest sense of my utter weakness and helplessness that ever a sinner was brought to feel. I am helpless in respect of every loss that ever was or ever will be in the human heart. I'm a worm, a beast before God. I often tremble to think that this is true. I feel as if it would not be safe for me to renounce all indwelling strength, as if it would be dangerous for me to feel what is the truth, that there is nothing in me keeping me back from the grossest and vilest sin. This is a delusion of the devil. My only safety is to know, feel, and confess my helplessness, that I may hang upon the arm of omnipotence. I daily wish that sin had been rooted out of my heart. I say, why did God leave the root of lasciviousness, pride, anger, and so on in my bosom? He hates sin, and I hate it. Why did he not take it clean away? I know many answers to this, which completely satisfy my judgment, but still I do not feel satisfied. This is wrong. It is right to be weary of the being of sin, but not right to quarrel with my present good fight of faith. The falls of professors into sin make me tremble. I have been driven away from prayer and burdened in a fearful manner by hearing or seeing their sin. This is wrong. It is right to tremble, and to make every sin of every professor a lesson of my own helplessness, but it should lead me more to Christ. If I were more deeply convinced of my utter helplessness, I think I would not be so alarmed when I hear the falls of other men. I should study those sins in which I am most helpless, in which passion becomes like a whirlwind and like a straw. No figure of speech can represent my utter lack of power to resist a torrent of sin. I ought to study Christ's omnipotence more. There are many subsidiary methods of seeking deliverance from sins which must not be neglected. Thus marriage, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 2, fleeing, 1 Timothy 6 verse 11, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18, watch and pray, Matthew 26 verse 41. The word, it is written, it is written. So Christ defended himself in Matthew 4. But the main defense is casting myself into the arms of Christ like a helpless child and beseeching him to fill me with the Holy Spirit. This is a victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. First John 5, verses 4 and 5, a wonderful passage. I ought to study Christ as a living Savior more as a shepherd. Carrying a sheep, he finds, as a king, reigning in and over their souls, he is redeemed. As a captain, fighting with those who fight with me, Psalm 35, as one who is engaged to bring me through all temptations and trials, however impossible to flesh and blood. 
I am often tempted to say, how can this man save us? How can Christ in heaven deliver me from lust, which I feel raging in me, and nets I feel enclosing me? This is a father of lies again. He is able to save to the uttermost. I ought to study Christ as an intercessor. He prayed most for Peter, who was to be most tempted. I am on his breastplate. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. I ought to study the Comforter more. His Godhead, His love, His almightiness. I have found by experience that nothing sanctifies me so much as meditating on the Comforter. Is John 14, verse 16. And yet how seldom I do this. Satan keeps me from it. I often feel like those men who said they knew not if there be any Holy Ghost. I never to forget that my body is dwelt in by the third person of the Godhead. The very thought of this should make me tremble to sin. I never to forget that sin grieves the Holy Spirit, vexes and quenches him. If I would be filled with the Spirit, I feel I must read the Bible more, pray more, and watch more.